an emergency apple patch, gas lighting computers, and why can't I keep using Windows 7? All that and more on the Naked Security Podcast. Welcome to the podcast, everybody. I am Doug Ameth. He is Paul Ducklin. Paul, how do you do? Well, I'm a little bit startled, Doug. You were very dramatic about the need to keep using Windows 7. Well, like many people, I am angry about it, and we'll talk about that in a bit. But first, a very important This Week in Tech History segment. July 11th, 1976 marked the last gasp for a once common mathematical calculation tool I am, of course, referring to the slide rule. The final model produced, the KNE 4081-3, was presented to the Smithsonian Institution, marking the end of a mathematical era, an era made obsolete by computers and calculators, such as Paul's favorite, the HP 35. So, Paul, I believe you have blood on your hands, sir. I never owned an HP 35. Firstly, I was much too young, and secondly, they were $395 each when they came (laughs) out. So it took another couple of years for prices to crash as Moore's Law kicked in, and then people didn't want to use slide rules anymore. My dad gave me his old one, and I treasured that thing because it was great. And I'll tell you what a slide rule does teach you, because when you're using it for multiplication, you basically convert the two numbers you want to multiply to numbers between 1 and 10. And then you multiply them together, and then you need to work out where the decimal point goes. If you divided one number by 100 and multiplied the other by 1,000 to get them in range, then overall you have to add one zero, multiply by 10 at the end. And it was a fantastic way of teaching yourself whether the answers you got from your electronic calculator, where you typed in long numbers like 7,000 million, whether you'd actually got the order of magnitude, the exponent, right. Slide rules and their printed equivalent log tables taught you a lot about how to manage orders of magnitude in your head and not accept bogus results too easily. I've never used one, but it sounds very exciting from what you just described. Let's keep the excitement going. Last week, Firefox released version 115 and included a note, which I'd like to read, and I quote... In January 2023, Microsoft ended support for Windows 7 and Windows 8. As a consequence, this is the last version of Firefox that users on those operating systems will receive. And I feel that every time one of these notes gets appended to a final release, people come out and say, why can't I keep using Windows 7? But we even had a commenter saying, Windows XP is just fine. So what would you say to these people, Paul? that don't want to move on from operating system versions that they love. The best way for me to put it, Doug, is to read back what I consider the better informed commenters on our article said. Alex Fair writes, It's not just about what you want, but about how you could be used and exploited and in turn harm others. And Paul Rue rather satirically said, Why are people still running Windows 7, or XP for that matter? If the reason is that newer operating systems are bad, why not use Windows 2000? Heck, NT4 was so awesome, it received six service packs. (laughs) 2000 was awesome, though. It's not all about you. It is about the fact that your system includes bugs 
that crooks already know how to exploit, that will never, ever get patched. So the answer is sometimes you simply have to let go, Doug. It's better to have loved and lost than to never have loved at all, as they say. Let's stay on the subject of Microsoft. Patch Tuesday, Paul, giveth bountifully. Yes, the usual large number of bugs fixed. The big news out of this, the stuff that you need to remember, and there are two articles you can go and consult on news.sophos.com if you want to know the gory details. One issue is that four of these bugs are in the wild, zero-day, already being exploited holes. Two of them are security bypasses, and as trivial as that sounds, they do apparently relate to clicking on URLs or opening stuff in emails where you would normally get a warning saying, are you really sure you want to do this? Which might stop quite a few people from making an unwanted mistake. And there are two elevation of privilege holes fixed. And although elevation of privilege usually gets looked down on as lesser than remote code execution, where crooks use the bug to break in in the first place, the problem with elevation of privilege is for crooks who are already sort of loitering with intent in your network, it's kind of like they're able to upgrade themselves from being a guest in a hotel lobby to a super-secretive silent burglar who suddenly magically has access to all rooms in the hotel. So those are definitely worth watching out for. And there's a special Microsoft security advisor. Well, there are several of them. The one I want to draw your attention to is ADV230001, which basically is Microsoft saying, hey, remember when Sophos researchers reported to us that they'd found a whole load of root kittery going on with signed kernel drivers that even contemporary Windows would just load because they were approved for use? Well, I think in the end, there were well over a hundred such signed drivers. The great news of this advisor is that all these months later, Microsoft has finally said, OK, we're going to stop those drivers from being loaded and start blocking them automatically. Which I suppose is quite big of them, really, when at least some of those drivers were actually signed by Microsoft itself as part of their hardware quality program. <laughs> If you want to find the story behind the story, as I said, just head to news.sophos.com and search for drivers. Excellent. All right. This next story, I am intrigued by this headline for so many reasons. Rowhammer returns to gaslight your computer. Paul, tell me about, tell me about the Rowhammer. <laughs> Nailed it. Go on, now you have to do the drift. Very good, Doug. Thank you. Those who don't remember this from the past, Rowhammer is the jargon name that reminds us that the capacitors, where bits of memory, ones and zeros, are stored in modern DRAM, dynamic random access memory chips, are so close together that when you write to one of them, you actually have to read and write them in rows at a time, thus Rowhammer. When you do that, because you've read the row, you've discharged the capacitors. Even if all you've done is look at the memory, you have to write back the old contents or they're lost forever. When you do that, because those capacitors are so tiny and so close together, there is a tiny chance that capacitors in one or both of the neighbouring rows might flip their value. It's called DRAM because it doesn't hold its charge indefinitely, like static RAM 
or flash memory. Flash memory can even turn the power off and it'll remember what was there. But with DRAM, after about a tenth of a second, basically the charges in all those little capacitors will have dissipated. So they need rewriting all the time. If you rewrite super fast, you can actually get bits in nearby memory to flip. Historically, the reason this has been a problem is if you can play with memory alignment, even though you can't predict which bits are going to flip, you might be able to mess with things like memory indices, page tables, data inside the kernel, even if all you're doing is reading from memory because you have unprivileged access to that memory outside the kernel. And that's what row hammer attacks to date have tended to focus on. Now, what these researchers from the University of California in Davis did is they figured, well, I wonder if the bit flip patterns, as pseudo-random as they are, are consistent for different vendors of chips, which is kind of sort of sounding like a super cookie, isn't it? Something that identifies your computer next time. And indeed, they went even further and they found that individual chips or memory modules, they usually have several DRAM chips on them, DIMMs, double inline memory modules, the things that you can clip into the slots in your desktop computer, for example, and in some laptops, that actually the bit flip patterns could be converted into a sort of iris scan or something like that so that they could recognize them later by doing the row hammering attack again. In other words, you can clear your browser cookies, you can change the list of applications you've got installed, you can change your username, you can reinstall a brand new operating system, but the chips, in theory, will give you away. And in this case, the idea is super cookies. Very interesting and well worth a read. It is cool. Uh, another thing about writing news, Paul, you are a good news writer, and uh, the idea is to hook the reader right away. So the first sentence of this next article, you say, even if you haven't heard of the venerable Ghost Script project, you may very well have used it without knowing. I am intrigued because the headline is, GhostScript bug could allow rogue documents to run system commands. Tell me more. Well, GhostScript is a free and open source implementation of Adobe's PostScript and PDF languages. If you haven't heard of PostScript, well, PDF is sort of PostScript next generation. It's a way of describing how to create a printed page or a page on a computer screen without telling the device which pixels to turn on. So you say, draw a square here, draw a triangle here, use this beautiful font. It's sort of a programming language in its own right that gives you device-independent control of things like printers and screens. And GhostScript is, as I said, a free and open source tool to do just that. And there are numerous other open source products that use exactly this tool as a way of importing things like EPS, encapsulated postscript files, such as you might get from a design company. So you might have GhostScript without realizing it. That's the key problem. And this was a small but really annoying bug. It turns out that a rogue document can say things like, I want to create some output and I want to put it in a file name XYZ. But if you put at the beginning of the file name percent sign pipe, P-I-P-E, percent sign, and then the file name, that file name was the name of a command to run that would process the output of GhostScript in what's called a pipeline. That may sound like a long story for a single bug, but the important part of this story is that after fixing that problem, oh no, we need to be careful if the file name, I'm using air quotes, starts with the characters percent pipe percent, 
because that actually means it's a command, not a file name, and that could be dangerous, could cause remote code execution. They patched that bug, and then someone realized, you know what, bugs often go in pairs or in groups, either similar coding mistakes elsewhere in the same bit of code, or more than one way of triggering that bug. And that's when someone in the Ghost Script team realized, you know what, we also let them type pipe character space command name. So we need to check for that as well. So there was a patch followed by a patch to the patch. And that is not necessarily a sign of badness on the part of the programming team. It's actually a sign that they didn't just do the minimum amount of work, sign it off, and leave you to suffer with the other bugs and wait till they were found in the wild. And lest you think we are done talking about bugs, boy, do we have a doozy for you. An emergency Apple patch emerged and then unemerged, and then Apple kind of sort of commented on it, which means that up is down and left is right, Paul. Yes, it's a little bit of a comedy of errors. I nearly but not quite feel sorry for Apple on this one, though because of their insistence on saying as little as possible when they don't say nothing at all, it's still not clear quite whose fault it is. But the story goes like this. Oh no, there's an O-Day in Safari, in WebKit, the browser engine that's used in every single browser on your iPhone and in Safari on your Mac. And crooks slash spyware vendors slash somebody is apparently using this for great evil. In other words, look and be pwned, or drive-by installs, or zero-click infection, or whatever you want to call it. So Apple, as you know, now has this rapid security response for at least the latest iOS, iPadOS, and MacOS, where they don't have to create a full system upgrade with a whole new version number that you can never downgrade from every time there's an O-Day. Thus, rapid security responses, these are the things that, if they don't work, you can remove them afterwards. The other thing is they're generally really tiny. Great. The problem is, it seems that because these updates don't get a new version number, Apple had to find a way of denoting that you had the rapid security response. So what they do is you take your version number, like iOS 16.5.1, and they add after it space round bracket A close round bracket. And the word on the street is that some websites, I shan't name them because this is all hearsay, when they were examining the user agent string in Safari, which includes the round brackets A, just for completeness, went, oi, what's round bracket A doing in a version number? So some users are reporting some problems, and Apple apparently pulled the update. And then after a whole load of confusion and another article on naked security and nobody quite knowing what was going on, <laughs> Apple finally published HT21387, a security bulletin that they produced before they actually had the patch ready, which they normally don't do. It was almost worse than saying nothing because they said, because of this problem, rapid security response round brackets B round brackets will be available soon to address this issue. And that's it. (laughs) (laughs) They don't quite say what the issue is. They don't say it is user agent strings. Because if so, maybe the problem's more with the website at the other end than Apple themselves. But Apple isn't saying. So we don't know whether it's their fault, the web server's fault, or both of them. And soon, Doug. This is a good time to bring in our reader question on this Apple story. Reader JP asks, why do websites need to inspect your browser so much? It's too snoopy and relies on old ways of doing things. What do you say to that, Paul? 
Now, I wondered that very question myself, and I went looking, you know, what are you supposed to do with user agent strings? It does seem to be a bit of a perennial problem for websites where they're trying to be super clever. So I went to MDN, what used to be, I think, Mozilla Developer Network, but it's now a community site, which is one of the best resources if you wonder what about HTTP headers, what about HTML, what about JavaScript, what about CSS, how does this all fit together? And their advice, quite simply, is please, everybody, stop looking at the user agent string. You're just making a rod for your own back and a bunch of complexity for everybody else. So why do sites look at user agent? I guess because they can. (laughs) When you are creating a website, ask yourself, why am I going down this rabbit hole of having a different way of responding based on some weird bit of a string somewhere in user agent? Try and think beyond that and life will be simpler for all of us. All right. Very philosophical. Thank you, JP, for sending that in. If you have an interesting story, comment, or question you'd like to submit, we'd love to read it on the podcast. You can email tips at sophos.com, comment on any one of our articles, or hit us up on social at Naked Security. That's our show for today. Thanks very much for listening. For Paul Ducklin, I'm Doug Ameth, reminding you until next time to stay, stay secure. secure.